Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. I'm Adam Yurick, along with Jim Massessa. And today's episode features The Rock. And we are joined by a special guest, friend of the show, Joe, who is a former Navy SEAL, going to give us some insight into the realisticness of Michael Bay's portrayal of the military, and especially the Navy SEALs and The Rock. Before we get there, Jim's going to take us through the official criterion summary and specs. A highly decorated retired U.S. Marine General, Ed Harris, seizes a stockpile of chemical weapons and takes over Alcatraz with 81 tourists as hostages on the San Francisco Bay Isle. His demand? Restitution to families of soldiers who died in covert operations. The response? An elite Navy SEAL team with support from an FBI chemical warfare expert, Nicholas Cage, and a former Alcatraz escapee, Sean Connery, is assembled to penetrate the terrorist defenses on the island and neutralize the threat before time runs out. The result? A fast-paced, edge-of-your-seat thriller with a first-rate cast, directed by Michael Bay and produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. This film came out in 1996. It's two hours and 16 minutes long. It's in color, 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio. Audio is Dolby Digital DTS 5.1 surround. And if you're following along at home, this is criterion number 108. Excellent. Thanks, Joe, for uh, joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm a huge fan of the show. I've listened to every single episode at least twice, and uh, I think both you guys are very attractive, so <laughs> I'm glad to be here. So. Thanks, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Could you uh, give us a little bit of uh, background of like what your experience was in the Navy? Uh, sure. Yeah, I spent eight years as a Navy SEAL. Just got out this past fall, so I have some relevant experience, I would say, but we'll get into that more later. Thanks. Something I didn't mention uh, in the intro is I think this is only the second time we've done a DVD versus a Blu-ray. This is only available DVD. I doubt they're ever going to re-release it Blu-ray and Criterion. And I think it kind of showed a little in the picture, too. I feel like on the Blu-rays, they clean up a lot of the like dust uh, and scratches and that kind of stuff. And I feel like on here, you could still see a lot of that. Yeah, I would say normally Criterion film, we would say, is if you're getting a film in the Criterion Correction, it's like the definitive yeah. version of that film the definitive print and this was clearly not that i mean it was probably an average to good dvd release it wasn't really that great there was a lot of dust and scratches and mm-hmm. so not really great and i've never watched the blu-ray version of this but i don't even know that it's been given like a really good blu-ray transfer either it's probably not not so much so uh second michael bay movie that we've done yes uh armageddon was the other one that we did i think this movie's much better than armageddon really debatable <laughs> This came out yeah. before Armageddon, right? Armageddon yeah, was 98. I would, yeah, I mean, I would say, like, in my opinion, this is probably the definitive, like, Michael Bay movie. If you're going to recommend a Michael Bay, I mean, Bad Boys maybe, but... Transformers? Transformers. No, no. I mean, I think this is a good... It has a good... It's definitely more watchable than, than some of his other films, especially Armageddon. <laughs> I think there was a handful of, like, pretty well-respected writers that actually helped clean up the script. Aaron Sorkin even wrote, like, a handful of jokes for Nicolas Cage. Huh. I know Sean Connery had like two British writers who rewrote all of his lines. And actually I read, uh, I was doing some research and read that Sean Connery, this was actually his, of the movies that he did, like in the 90s, this was, uh, in late 80s, this was one of his favorites. He's listed as an executive producer on this as well. Yeah. So that's a good Aaron Sorkin connection then because John Spencer is... Yeah, 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 the West Wing. He's uh, Womack, the, uh, right. he's the F- director of the FBI. Yeah, FBI he director He plays uh, Leo McGarry on the, in the West Wing, chief of staff. And uh, Philip Baker Hall, who doesn't have a lot of lines in this, he's credited as chief justice. I originally knew him as the, 
I think his name was Bookman. He was the library cop oh, from yeah, Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw you on TV once. I remembered your name from my list. I looked it up. Sure enough, it checked out. You think because you're a celebrity that somehow the law doesn't apply to you, that you're above the law? Certainly not. But he's also in, he's in like three episodes of The West Wing. He plays a senator. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So uh, overall thoughts, Jim? And you probably don't. I mean, you're not, <laughs> not really a big, big, big Michael Bay fan. No. I mean, I don't know that I'm a big Michael Bay fan either. I mean, I've seen this movie a ton of times. I feel like this is one of those, like, it was always on TNT or USA yeah. or something like that. To sit down and just watch not expecting to get much out of it, I feel like it's a good mindless action movie. But if you're going to start really looking at the plot or any of the writing, I, I feel like it's going to fall apart pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a good action movie, and that's sort of the Criterion Collection is like amassing some of the, you know, I would say like genre-defining films, and I think this is a good, solid, like, popcorn action movie. Explosions. If you want to watch a movie that has explosions, you think about all the movies that are in the Criterion Collection, there really aren't action movies. Yeah, that's true. So other than Armageddon and The Rock, I'd have to really go through and try to find, like, what's an action movie, because I don't know how there were many in there. I think I saw RoboCop on there, right? Oh, oh RoboCop yeah, was in there. Robocop. Yeah, yeah. That was a good one. And there's um, double Jackie Chan set now. Oh, uh, Police Story? Police yeah, Story Police one, Story. Police Story 2. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's a handful. I mean, I think those are a little different from yeah. like a martial arts perspective. Not like so. an American action movie. Right, right. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of explosions. I watched this two times in the last week. So this time I counted how many times somebody went through uh, a window. <laughs> and I counted at least 10 four of which were Nicolas Cage. And then I was also trying to keep track of how many bad guys actually got killed in this because I I think there might be a little funny math going on, which we can get to later, regarding how much money they were demanding and how much he was going to pay out, but how many people were actually on the island. I don't think anybody, everybody was going to get paid correctly. Yeah, it was kind of funny because every time there was, especially once the SEALs came in and these people started invading the island, anytime there was, oh, we found somebody, it's like the entire group of Marines (laughs) ran to that section and like, but then yet there were just these other random guys who just happened to like show up and be guarding, guarding the rockets. Uh, and then they would just like, you know, of course, like creatively repel in and, uh, you know, save the day. Yeah, they were repelling left and right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we can start at the beginning of the movie. I think VX gas is actually a real thing. So yes. that's not fictitious. Actually, um, and I'm not going to rem- remember his name, but um, the brother of Kim Jong-il or however you say his name, the leader of North Korea, his I think that's how his brother was actually assassinated oh. uh, in that airport. They put like VX gas or VX, I don't know if it was liquid or whatever, and then like sprayed him in the face with it. Mm-hmm. It didn't obviously like melt his skin off of his face like it does in, in the movies. But uh, I do know it, it does like pretty much shut down your central nervous system and, and kill you pretty quickly. Venomous Agent X is oh, the VX. Nice. Uh, General Hummel is like leading this group of guys to steal these rockets they say they steal 15 rockets, but I feel like when you're watching the movie and Nicolas Cage is actually deactivating them, I feel like you only really see like three or four rockets. Yeah. You see a lot of those canisters, but once the rockets launch, the canisters don't do you any good. I was thinking maybe that like each rocket had like four. Oh, like, yeah, that would make like sense. Four compartments of possibly missiles or something like that. But yeah, I'm there was sure. that point in the morgue where they pull out and there's like a drawer yeah. of them. So I don't know if they had like extras and to to do something with. I don't know. And in terms of rockets, they um, there's the scene, you know, when Hummel takes the hostage out and they're broadcasting over like the intercom system to get uh, Mason and Goodspeed's attention. He has like six or seven guidance chips in his hand that he drops on the ground. So they clearly diffused a whole bunch of rockets before we got to that part. 
which was kind of interesting because at the end of the movie when he diffuses what you think is the last rocket that marines coming after him like he's he diffuses the rocket pulls the stuff out but then he's like still getting the guidance chip and then he's going after this guidance chip but the rocket fired because he fired the rocket through the window right right uh, and then i think he fired the last one so what's the point how then again they the could always chip? they could always take the chip to a different rocket that hadn't been fired oh uh, that's true yeah if there were any left down the morgue or something yeah, just plot hole, we'll never know. Maybe in a sequel, they ever do a sequel. <laughs> Unclear. So going back to the beginning, uh, Hummel, like in the very beginning, he's like kind of doing a voiceover and he's like getting all dressed up and he goes to his wife's grave. In Arlington. Yeah. What you would have guessed would be Arlington. Yeah. And uh, the grave of his wife actually just says his wife. Yeah, I think that's actually pretty standard. I've been to Arlington and I've seen that actually say like his wife. Yeah, I think so on a lot of the military graves. So he puts a an award on top. Yeah, the Medal of Honor. What do you get that one for? That's the highest award. The Medal of Honor is right in, in every branch of the service. They have like a different design, but it's the highest uh, award you can get. Yeah, no, it's it's just one design for all people. So oh, is it? I think I it's think different so. for the different branches of the military. Are you correcting? Us? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, either way, e- each branch of the military has just the Medal of Honor. It's not like. Like in the Navy, that award that's below that one, I think, is the Navy Cross. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like in the Army, they have like a different version of that, and then in the Air Force, they have a different version of that. So, yeah. but yeah, that's the highest. There's only I don't know. There's probably less than a hundred living recipients of the award. It was good that they showed that because it helps to flesh out Hummel a little bit. Because I feel like his actual reasoning is very flawed. He's basically petitioning to try to get recognition and monetary compensation for these soldiers who were killed in action in covert ops so nobody would really know what they did. The fact that he has that highest medal of honor, he did receive recognition, so you know he's not doing it for himself. He has been recognized. He really is doing it for his comrades that he feels did not receive what he received. Right, right. He said they were uh, Marine Force Recon. Joe, any familiarity with that at all? We work with some of them up in, like, California and whatever else. Some of them are stationed in Camp Pendleton, so it's not too far away. But I don't know if any Black Ops-style recon guys, I don't know if that really exists. Okay. What would the Marine Force recon do versus, like, what uh, a SEAL team would do? It's a lot of similar stuff. So, honestly, it depends on, like, whoever's in charge of that AO, like, the area operations. So, if it's, like, a Marine general or something like that, then maybe he'd be like, oh, I want Marines. Or I know... A lot of SEALs are getting bad press these days, so maybe they don't even want them involved. A lot, okay. of, a lot of political stuff, but a lot of their mission sets are the same. Okay. So it's just more like a choice of who's ever in charge of what, like what unit they're going to be. Mm-hmm. In. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely SEALs are better like water. Got like, it. Doing yeah, water yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of similar, similar stuff. Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's just sort of like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure there are military units that do classified missions. So I think it's just kind of exaggerating that type of stuff. Because I know even you have like Delta Force, and then I think the CIA has like an elite special forces unit of like former military members who do CIA missions. So it's not too far fetched that there would be yeah, former I mean, or current military members doing stuff and not getting and being like, oh, those people don't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think just like as that as like a potential plot point is probably not too far off. Would somebody get drafted into this special elite force where it's covert ops, or is that more of like somebody's? done very well in whatever branch they're in and they get the option to go into this special elite force. My reasoning would be that if they voluntarily went into a branch where they knew nobody's going to know what I'm doing, 
it seems strange that he would then be arguing that nobody knows what they did and they should be recognized. If it's more of they got pulled into that and didn't have a choice, then I would agree with him saying like, yeah, they didn't choose to not be recognized and now they are not being recognized. It sounds like from the movie, they're more of uh, in areas that we weren't known to be in. So that once they died or whatever, they uh, just kind of forgot about them. Like, hey, they never, they were never in this area. Nothing happened. Their families didn't get the, the contributions that a normal soldier would get. Right, like if they were killed in action or something like that, you'd get potentially medals, like potentially like you might get like a bronze star or silver oh, star right. or a purple heart and you would get... Mm-hmm. You but know, you also get life insurance. Right, like The family right. gets insurance and stuff like that, whereas maybe they yeah. didn't at the time. So they can't even say that they were killed in action because they're not even supposed to know they were in action. Right, right. So to Jim's other question, though, in terms about like how someone would go into that thing, could you explain a little bit about like what does that look like? As far as I'm concerned... A lot of the groups, even Navy has certain groups like that, and then um, other branches, and even like FBI. As far as I know, for sure, it's people that have previously served. So like SEALs want to go on to bigger and better things, and then they try out for those units, and they could uh, get into them and go into whatever unit they want. But it's, it. it's for it's for sure something you have to try out for after okay. you already have experience. Got it. And then They're so, kind of like the best of the best. Right, right, right. What do you do even if you're just in the Navy? So I'm in the Navy and I'm like, I don't know, serving on a like destroyer and I decide like I want to become a Navy SEAL. What is that? Like what do you have to do then as someone who's just regular recruit in the Navy? I guess um, like even your Yeah, your I mean you have to put in a package. It. So you'll have to like pass all the the prerequisite tests, like physical and mental tests and stuff like that, and they'll put in a package and get it approved to go to BUDS. It's a lot harder if you're in the in the military already trying to put in a package versus you could go in from recruitment. And just say, hey, I want to go to Buds right away. And that's where they get most of their people. Okay. Nowadays, it's a lot smaller of classes. They used to have like 300 people per class. So they'd be taking people from the fleet, people from civilian life, whatever. Whereas now it's a little harder. So you have to pass those prerequisite tests and wait for a spot. Sometimes it takes like a year or two to even get a spot. Okay. Um, that's just for the Navy. I'm sure the Marines and the Army, it's all a little different. Got it. And then BUDS is basic underwater demolition SEAL training, right? Is that what that school? School. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and that's how, like, how long is does that go for? In all, the training before checking into a team is about two years. So it's about two years okay. of training, including boot camp. You have a pre BUDS, BUDS, and then uh, qualification training. And then for us, we did language training and stuff like that afterwards. So it was about a whole two years of training. Okay. And Bud is like what everybody hears about with like mm-hmm. Hell Week and like, you know, like. Yeah, so Bud's on its own is and... about six months. Okay. So. Got it. Yeah. Because I know I think the famous, um, I think it was um, Admiral uh, McRaven gave that famous commencement speech and he Make talked your about. Bed. Yeah, exactly. Like talking about, you know, what, what it was like to go through there. So that's like that what that portion of the training was. That's mm-hmm. like where they're trying to weed people out. Right. You you yeah. don't actually learn much like much relevant skills in buds. It's more of just beating you down, trying to make see if you'll pass those tests, get to that next level. Got it. And then once you get through buds and go do the qualification training, that's where you get more kind of technical um weapons and tactic training. Got it. So if we think about like the beginning of the film, um, when they're like they use those like grappling hooks or whatever to shoot in to go and storm the naval depot. Is that like even does that even exist? Like is that something that you would even like when you're like running on like a big, you know, (laughs) Batman style like (laughs) rope to swing in over the barbed wire fence? 
Yeah, like a little zip line down. Yeah. Like we've done zip lining a little bit, but not like in a tactical sense. Like you would never go on a mission and be like, "Hey, I'm going to zip line across <laughs> these buildings." I mean, maybe people do it. I've never seen it. Yeah. But okay. And then that that part of the movie too, they were like, "Oh, non-lethal." Last night, General Hummel, using brutal but non-lethal force under the guise of a security exercise, walked off with 15 VX poison gas rockets. He lost one of his own men in the process. Like they were shooting him with darts. What about the guy they kicked out of the, the guard tower? Right. <laughs> he fell like 100 feet. Yeah. Like, uh, they come crashing through the window and kick this dude out of the tower. And he's like, oh, non-lethal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good, that's definitely a good point where it's like, oh, well, you know, his dart, uh, you know, or even some of the dart shots where they were giving guys, where they're like flipping over and falling off of like the stairs and stuff like yeah. that. Like these guys definitely like broke their necks or their yeah. arms or. Yeah. Like dart shot them into the face, like from like <laughs> a foot away too. <laughs> it's like... And they did let one of their own guys die there, too, when the capsule breaks. Yeah, and they just, like, sealed. Like, face melts off. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's something that, in, in like, an actual mission, would they have actually tried to, like, get that guy out of there, or... Yeah, because they wouldn't have the support or anything like that. Either. I mean, normal units are going to have response forces, backup, like, whatever support backup base, too, as far as any kind of chemical weapons. So you'll have, like, chemical weapon suits and stuff like that that you'll go in. Yeah. And have. And then once you get back to base, you kind of strip everything off and uh, contain it. Right. Because if that was actually like, let's say that that in that beginning of the film, that base was like the base of like bad guys that a SEAL team going in there would not just be like six guys going in and all by themselves. Like there'd probably be a whole other group of people um, like in the background and stuff like that. Yeah, there would definitely have. Yeah, there would definitely be planned a little better. Yeah. You don't just send your entire crew in, including the major general like right <laughs> just right through the front gate <laughs> yeah yeah well he was the decoy though like that was how he was able to yeah, get on true. like to kind of i mean he had the id he's you know it was a i think he's a one-star general so i guess it's like a brigadier general in the yeah Marine somebody Corps, called him so. brigadier yeah so um yeah i mean he could probably just go wherever he wants for the most part my main issue with his whole plan okay i get that they they're on rockets they didn't need to be on rockets because nicholas cage pulls the gas out later like in the canisters so they set up at Alcatraz so they can launch the rockets. But if you're really trying to not get caught, wouldn't you just take the canisters, say like, you three guys go here in San Francisco, I'll go here, you go there, just stay there, I'll make my threat, nobody knows where we are, but we'll tell them we're in San Francisco, then they can't just come and bomb Alcatraz because they don't know where we are. But he says that he, at the beginning, he's like, I know what your countermeasure is, and we both know that's not a feasible option, because... The plasma of whatever you know, yeah, it would bomb set, stuff. Set the gas off. Yeah, it's not like they can't just regularly they can't napalm drop it. napalm, but right? He doesn't and know the about stuff the is thermite, like in, whatever. Well, he no, he says I know your countermeasure, and he's like, oh no, the thermite plasma is like in prototype stage, like it's nowhere near ready to actually be used. And that's p- part of like what the delay is in this thing is that they're that entire time that they had that deadline, their air force is trying to get the thermite plasma so that it would actually. So they developed this work. whole new weapon system in about a day and a half. That's so. <laughs> in prototype phase, so they're still, uh, you know, he said they're, he's, he kept saying to go out to, like, Mojave, so I assume that, I don't know, some Air Force base out in the Mojave Desert. I don't know if there is an Air Force base in the Mojave Desert. Yeah, it I don't know. be classified. Probably. The uh, other uh, logistical problem, a little later when they introduce Nicolas Cage and they bring him a box that they said was found. Oh, from at, Bosnia? It was being shipped 
to Bosnia yeah. from JFK? It literally said like Bosnian <laughs> aid on the side of the box because you know that's what you write on the box. But like what if you find a mysterious package in JFK airport, why did they ship it all the way down to DC before they did any? Like that's a long stretch of miles at something. Yeah, you probably went... wouldn't even move it. You would just leave, bring the people there. Right. And the sirens going off at the same time too. Like they just discovered it or I don't know. Yeah. You gotta you have to have those kind of scenes in movies to yeah. set up. I mean, Michael Bay, I think, is like the uh kind of the master of like over exaggerated foreshadowing. So when it's like, oh, here's this uh atropine needle and he spends so much time talking about the atropine needle and like, oh, you have to put it in your chest, like that just totally leads to the fact that, oh yeah, later on, here's this atropine needle, Nicolas Cage, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to use this. The scene where you meet Nicolas Cage, you also meet Marvin Isherwood. He's on the phone sometimes, but he's like his intern almost. He's like right, the, right. Guy. He's the guy with suit melts. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff too from the '90s. But the my most recognized movie would be High Fidelity. He's like the oh yeah, this one of the store owners. Yeah. Oh, hi, hi Rob. The weekend. Yeah. Okay. Um, I found the first Licorice Confits album over at Vintage Vinyl, the one on Testament of Youth. Never released here, Japanese import only. Great. Great. I don't know. I thought he was going to be in this more, but definitely not. Definitely not. Not not in the movie with Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. I mean, if you think about some of the actors that were in this film, it was a pretty good cast. Like you had John Spencer, you have David Morse, who was Ed the Harris. Uh, yeah, Ed Harris. Um, I mean, and you have Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery in there. In addition to like William Forsythe, who was the slick back, yep. haired um, FBI agent. He's been in a ton of stuff. And Doctor Cox from Scrubs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had um, um, I can never remember the actor's name, but the guy who was in um. That horror movie with the bees, uh, the Candyman. He was the uh, uh, Tony Todd. He yeah, was Tony Captain Todd. Darrow. Yeah, he was the guy who was like um, at the end. He was rock- the Rocket Man. He was like tossing his like huge like K-bar knife back and forth in his hands, you know, dramatically. And a couple other people. I think um, the African American soldier who gets shot by Ed Harris in the neck. He's been in a bunch of stuff. I don't remember his. Bokeem Woodbine. I think. Yeah. He was Sergeant Crisp. Yep. And then the other guy was um, who was the. The guy who has one of the best lines of the movie, which is, um, don't take pleasure in gutting you, boy. He was in a uh, law show, um, on in the 90s. But yeah, I mean, a ton, like, I mean, for a, a Michael Bay film, like, pretty good, solid cast. And yeah, I mean, I think the writing's not really bad. I don't know, we could get into, uh, we can get, I mean, we could just talk about acting now that we're talking about all the actors, because I know you both probably have, I know Joe especially probably has opinions on, uh, Nicolas Cage. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but I horrible. Feel, but I feel like of Nicolas Cage films, this is one of the more like tamed down in terms of his his performance. I don't think it's, I mean, in terms of other movies that he's been in, you know, like could be he's way. Still had more a couple good that. freakouts in there. Yeah, a couple good little Nicolas Cage freakouts. But I would say this this is my top three for Nicolas Cage for sure. What would be your other two? Well, Connor is pretty awesome. Yeah, and then uh, or I guess. He, I mean, top he, five. I would say top. Top five. five. Okay. What's your? T- <laughs> He's got like leaving Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah. You got Con Air. Yeah. National Treasure. Yeah. National Treasure. Raising Arizona. I don't think I ever actually watched that full all the way. Yeah. Through. Didn't he win an Academy? I think he won an Academy Award for that. Really? Wow. Yeah. Because okay, he maybe. famously, because that was kind of one of the connections, is that he presented Sean Connery because he won Best Supporting Actor, and then Sean Connery won the neck the following year for The Untouchables. Um, and he presented Sean Connery's with his with his Oscar, and then they were both in The Rock. And actually, that's why Sean Connery did this movie, because when he heard Nicolas Cage had been cast, then he said yes to uh, agreeing to do the movie. I'll have to find the article, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, There's a great piece that was written, I think, uh, in the New York Times, or even it was in maybe in Variety, 
But it was this whole article about how Nicolas Cage is like the most underrated actor of his generation, most underappreciated, that he basically like was born in the wrong, you know, in the wrong generation that like had he been born and been in movies like in the 40s and 50s, he would have fit more like his acting style and the way that he kind of just did these like crazy character acting roles because that's really a lot of like he's a really really good character actor that was just given like leading leading roles but you have to appreciate his like overacting it's <laughs> it is good like he is he is good like you like watch the scene National in Treasure. ghost rider when he lights on fire for the <laughs> well, first time <laughs> i mean you can you can say like you know nicholas cage's choices have been uh you know his film choices <laughs> pretty poor but uh you have like your nicholas cage performance which is like its own thing i think outside of Ed Harris and David Morse's performances from the Marines, all the Marine roles were like very over the top, like ridiculous in terms of the dialogue they had, in terms of their reactions. We did get one thing. One of my favorite things is um, Ed Harris. His always has like, he has this really like uh, exasperated like shout that he does. I feel like in every movie he does, he gets really angry and he does that. I think he says, Stand down, Captain. Stand down, Captain! And it's just this, like, his voice cracks. Yeah, I mean, Ed Harris is a great actor. I would say most of the bad guys, but also Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery and uh, Forsyth, almost every cliche line you could think of throwing in a movie was used in this movie. I always expected something like this was going to happen. Give me the pen again. I don't like you anymore you like me. I don't think I like your tone, Captain. I'll do my best. This is not happening. You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. Just sit tight. I got you, baby. Major Baxter, you're either with us or against us. Thank God have mercy on their souls. Bingo. I got a bad feeling about this. He's dead, sir. Hey, it's business. They're on to us. We're dead. Make no mistake, gentlemen. We're in the fight of our lives. FBI! Freeze, sucker! Freeze, mister! Man, you pal! You're going down! I'm too old for this! Non-stop. Just every character. You can't blame that on the acting. That's the writing. And I feel like for Nicolas Cage, they're throwing him in crazy situations. So there's a little overacting that I would say is acceptable. But he was a little over the top. Like when they had him in uh, Locked in the Jail Cell. And he's just repeating that line you said earlier. I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. I'll take pleasure in gutting you, boy. That's good. But yeah, there's some pretty good one-liners on this one. Yeah, well, I think that's what makes it good. I think that's yeah. what makes it a good uh, a good action film. Like good action films have good one. Yeah, you embrace like, the cheesiness. Yeah, that's kind of the best part. It's a fun. Like you're not going to this movie to be wow. It's not you know some amazing piece of cinema. It's uh it's an action movie. You're there to like you pay a couple bucks to go to the movies theater to see some explosions. You know you had your requisite guys running from balls of fire, which mm-hmm. is you know mm-hmm. pretty much a Michael Bay thing in like any movie that exists he's ever done. I think Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage at least three times got blown up like in the air. Yeah, and then walked right <laughs> away from <laughs> walked away from it. Yeah, I mean Sean Connery gets like two frag grenades thrown in at him, and he just jumps into a bathtub and survives. Like uh, I mean I don't know how realistic that. I think was. the best is that subway car. Oh, yeah. Blowing up oh, about yeah. 50 feet in the air, and then the guy just walking out of it. Like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was pretty funny, though. He, had, I mean, even himself, he had some good... Save yourselves. He had some, he had some good one-liners, too. 
when they were down in the tunnel in Alcatraz and, and they're like dropping bombs into the tunnels to like flush them out, there's one that explodes like feet away from them, knocks them both off their feet. And then as soon as they come out of the water, Sean Connery's like, I think they're on to us. <laughs> like, how can you even hear after yeah. that? Just, yeah, the, their brains would be mush. <laughs> <laughs> there was one other actor that we didn't really mention because he's only really in one scene. Stanley Anderson plays the president and he gives a little monologue. Exactly. He's the same president from Armageddon. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's so, the exact yeah. same guy. And he's like, this is the worst decision I've ever made. I was like, until you have to worry about the, the asteroid that hits the Earth. So is this is the, is the rock in Armageddon I, in the same world? I think you could make the argument because the other thing I found out, too, the guy who gets his Humvee stolen is the exact same guy who gets his car stolen in Armageddon. Oh, damn. So... Theoretically, wow. these I think two this movies could be a pre- exist. I think this could be a prequel for uh, National Treasure because he finds that film role at the end That's with true. all the secrets. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then that could lead him to Declaration of Independence. So maybe he has a twin brother or some cousin who looks exactly the same as Nicolas Cage. Mm. By the way, he has a, his character, Stanley Goodspeed. Like That's a solid movie, solid movie name. Yeah, very uh, unrealistic as far <laughs> as the name goes. Goodspeed, and uh, he does end up stealing... A couple cars, including a Ferrari. This is a few years before he was in Gone in 60 Seconds, right? I think so. And I'm pretty sure he steals at least one Ferrari in that movie as well. So I read too, so speaking of like um, other action movies, that uh, that Michael Bay, I guess, made Nicolas Cage take his shirt off for that scene when he's like playing the guitar. And Nicolas Cage was just like, no, I'm not. I'm not taking my shirt off. And he's like, no, you're taking your shirt off. <laughs> and I, was, I had just read the stuff from, I think Will Smith was just on The Tonight Show. He was talking about being in Bad Boys, and he was talking about Michael Bay was like, yo, you know, you're going to take your shirt off for this scene. There's like running. He's like, I'm not taking my shirt off. That's too. He's like, no, man, I'm going to make you a movie star. Take your shirt off. <laughs> and then he was just like, I mean, that movie made me into a movie star, so I, I listened to what Michael Bay tells me to do. <laughs> uh, how realistic is being able to cut through like an interrogation room window with a quarter? <laughs> I don't really know what the, I mean. He I only did like one circle. And I then think punched that was. It. To I feel like, like those have got to be pretty thick glass. Like, oh, well, I think it was. If you notice, he punched out the area, so it was like the coin scored the glass. I don't know if that does something. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't have a lot of experience like cutting holes in glass and breaking them. I don't think it shatters out like a piece of plastic the way that one did. Yeah, that's true. I don't. I mean, I don't know if like two A glass is really like built that way. Well, and only minutes later, when they're having their car chase through the street, Nicolas Cage ends up mowing down a row of uh, parking meters and gets showered with quarters again. Yeah. And speaking of the quarter, that's another great example of the Michael Bay foreshadowing moment in which the quarter gets flipped and it's this super dramatic close-up of the quarter, like twirling on the thing, you know, twirling on the desk and falling on the ground. You know right. that quarter is going to be used. It's Chekhov's quarter. Yeah, Chekhov's quarter. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of the Sean Connery character, John Mason, I mean, he, he basically is James Bond yeah. for the most part. I think someone actually did like the math and it, it couldn't actually be James Bond based on how old they said he actually was. But he said but he, was he was trained. Yeah, he was in the SAS, which yeah. is like the British Special Air Service. You ever uh, meet any of those guys or? Not British. Not I've British. met some of the Australian SAS guys. Oh, okay. So it's like the same, same thing because it's all part of the. Yeah, similar. Kinda, yeah. They're all really good. They're yeah. all as good as we are pretty much. And is that like Britain, Australia, is that their only version of a special forces unit or is that just like a like Yeah, I don't know. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure they have yeah, a bunch of different units that have different purposes. Yeah, makes sense. 
post car chase, since we we're talking about the car chase a little a uh, little bit while ago, that we had our first Michael Bay low shot slow pan that happens when uh, Nicholas Cage like gets out and he just kind of like looks up and it's that slow like dolly around him pans up. That's you know hallmark of uh, just about any uh, any good Michael Bay movie. I think there was at least two or three shots of uh, Ben Affleck when his character was introduced at one point on the oil rig mm-hmm. um, in Armageddon. Bad Boys. That's just like. The yeah, whole movie yeah. is those shots. That's like his signature. Uh, I read a thing on IMDb of Ed Harris talking about how like he shot he shoots so much coverage. So coverage is when they're like actors doing their lines and they'll do like a wide shot, then they'll do like a close up, medium shot. They'll do it from over here. He shoots so much of those different shots of him just saying the same line that he's just like this is ridiculous. Like we're just standing here for like hours as he's shooting one line of me, a one line of dialogue, and he's just like panning the camera all over the place. <laughs> those same pans were like. All over the uh, Transformers movies. <laughs> oh yeah, I would say that's definitely his signature signature style that he's brought to movies is that camera shot. That's like his his thing. When he got out of the Ferrari, they cut past this really quick. I thought it was one of the funnier parts where he crashed the Ferrari and he sees the uh, the trolley like explode in the air and coming down, but his airbag went off, so he like can't get out of the car. So he shoots the airbag. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <That's so> t- <laughs> And and right before then, uh, when Sean Connery's coming down the hill, he's like smashing into everything. And there's one scene where he kind of like goes to the side when he smashes into the car. And that vehicle definitely came to a stop. Yeah. And then it immediately cuts to him still flying down the hill. Yeah, I do like the moments in which I think Sean Connery does a good job like playing off the fact that he's been in prison for so long. So like the car phone stuff is kind of funny. There's some good like funny scenes when he like doesn't understand the whole grunge thing. And a bunch of other stuff. Even his reactions, like the phone in the sh- in the in the hotel room with the shower, and I don't know how realistic it would be if when he throws John Spencer off of the balcony and just held by that cord, by that thin yeah. rope, <laughs> yeah, and just hanging him there. <laughs> I'm just gonna toss this guy over the edge and see what happens. And then he just like rolls it up on the chair and lets yeah. go. Yeah, you know, like. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's easily, he easily weighs like well, I don't know, like 150, 160 at least. There's no way it would hold him. <laughs> so they're on Alcatraz take the tour uh tour people hostage i did read that one that for the most part while they were shooting this movie alcatraz was open and so there were a lot of tourists who were actually watching them film scenes of the movie no oh. but i think you know there's this shot where you kind of when he like tells the girls to get off you can like oh this guy is not like a bad guy like he's not doing this right you know he doesn't really want to kill people he shoots the rocket the other way I think they do a really good job of the film and that of kind of like setting up ed harris's character david morse's character these guys are like not evil, but the other Marines, like, they definitely do a good job of setting them up to, like, these guys are, like, cold-blooded killers. Like, when the SEALs come in and they're in the, the shower or thing, and the one guy's like, Let, like, let's just waste these guys. Yeah, I feel like in that scene, it looked like there were seven of the bad Marines on each side, like, up in the top, and there were still, like, three or four people back in the control room that they were communicating with. Yeah, I mean, I think we could say... <laughs> Still that, going back to the money thing? So, 100 million? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, because he said... He said uh, they each get a million, right? I think he said something like that. I think he wanted like... I think he wanted $100 million. He wanted $100 million, $83 million to the families. That leaves $17 million. Mm-hmm. And he told all his men, we're each getting a million dollars, and then you can leave the country but never come back. So that means he can only have 17 men with him, including himself, or he's lying. I mean, I think that's a pretty close count of how many guys he had though like how many actual like on-screen actors that had lines there was at least 10 what about like the helicopter pilots they don't get paid i think they were marines that were there yeah because i think they left the helicopters yeah the helicopters was still there and i mean it doesn't matter what you do like if even if you join the the jag corps and you're like i want to be a marine you go through actual like 
their actual boot camp and through actual training because you're always a Marine first. So whether you're a Marine pilot or whether you're actually in force recon, like you went through the same training so they, they could hand you a rifle and you could go in the infantry. Well, you went to boot camp, so yeah, you, right. know, you know how to shoot a rifle, but you, yeah. you don't really learn much in boot camp. No, but I mean, like, if, if they were force recon Marines and they were the pilots, mm-hmm. the, I would assume, like, yeah, they would the, have to have some they, kind of... those would be, like, special forces pilots, so they would have some level of training. You never know. Maybe Ed Harris likes to fly. He's got his pilot's license. He was one Flies of the pilots. Hueys. Yeah, he was one of the Huey pilots. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the Navy SEALs. Since we have a special guest here who was uh, a Navy SEAL, the, the premise is they're going to have the SEAL team. The SEAL team's going to go with John Mason, Stanley Goodspeed, have this insertion, which the one Marine um, dramatically tells us and describes like what a uh, SEAL incursion is. An incursion underwater to retake an impregnable fortress held by an elite team of U.S. Marines in possession of 81 hostages and 15 guided rockets armed with VX poison gas. So they go in the water, and then they're going to go in through the tunnels that John Mason has found. So like... In terms of what the SEALs did, like being dropped from the helicopter, their fancy little like scuba stuff, like mm-hmm. is that is that like realistic, like the way that that was kind of done with like the decoy helicopters and stuff like that, or is that kind of over exaggerated? Would it have been yeah, like I don't a even much... know why they would have dropped them out of the helicopter. They could have easily just gone off of a boat. Right. Okay. So like it would be much simpler. <laughs> yeah. In terms just off of, of a boat, like a mile away or something like that. And the little like all the scuba stuff they had, like the underwater stuff. Well, it looked like they had Draegers, so that was accurate. But then they were like, uh, you need to like breathe out of it before you actually get in the water. And they're just like, Nicolas Cage is like taking his out of his mouth and talking and this and that. But because it uses pure oxygen, you have to actually breathe from that for like five minutes before you go in the water. Okay, so the Draegers are thing like the... Yeah, it's just a rebreather. So okay. you'll have like a little tank of oxygen, but it'll scrub your breath. So every time you take a breath in and you breathe out, it'll fill up like a, a bag. That exhale, it'll save like the good oxygen. So oh, okay. out of a good breath, you can get a couple more breaths out of it before it really takes more out of that bottle. Oh, okay, got it. And then what about like the little uh, underwater? The submarine. The submarine oh, the things they have. Yeah. Some units have something similar, but I've never used anything like it. I imagine something like that would be incredibly dangerous. Because <laughs> like when you're scuba diving, it's crazy. It's uh, really dangerous to kind of change levels. Right, something like that. I could see that going like right because you're just easily like, going from twenty feet to ten feet, or like back and forth. Yeah, and just get some crazy bad AGE gas embolisms. Okay, yeah, just yeah. Crazy diving sicknesses from like stuff right. like that. Does every SEAL team like do diving stuff like that, or is there just like a special group? Yeah, there's like a group out of Hawaii that that's like their main mission is diving stuff. But every SEAL's been dive qualified, so they could do trigger dives. Okay, so would that? But not like crazy. We, for the most part, especially with the past, the wars of the past 20 years, diving's kind of been put on the back burner. Right, right. That makes sense. That one Marine builds that little custom motion device. Is that, like, even a thing? Like, do people in Special Forces, like, do their own custom versions of (laughs) things to have? (laughs) Not that I know of. (laughs) I mean, it's super cool if somebody's that motivated and can come up with something cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he'd be allowed to use it. It's not like, hey, don't use that. If you have something cool and interesting that's usable. Do they encourage a lot of uh, screaming and shouting when you fire a gun? Is that helpful? Oh, at the all? bathroom scene. Yeah. <laughs> and then they also do a lot of firing from the hip in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like not aiming at all, and then everybody's gun is on full auto. Right. So they're not even. They're just like blasting away, and then I don't think I saw like very many reloads at all. <laughs> so it's like. Which is that? That's not realistic then. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
So like in terms of what the seals do, so they come up through that manhole. Like I think Jim and I both could say that probably doesn't seem to make a lot of like tactical sense in terms of like no. what they would do. But like in a situation in which that was their only entry point, what could they have done in that situation had they known that there were people potentially coming in? Well, even even still, they could have like a couple of recce guys, like a, a recon team, like two or three guys go and check out the area before sending the whole team <laughs> right. up into this sh- really shitty spot, you know? Right. I don't think any SEAL mission would base off of some dude in jail. <laughs> like they, let's get this guy out of jail and lead us into combat. I would imagine that even in like a instance in which you had to quickly go and mobilize and go somewhere, there's still a lot of planning. Yeah, you still have like a brief a and like a yeah plans and stuff like that. Whereas from what you see in the movie, it sounds like they get this guy and they just go and he's like, he'll show us the way, and they have like no no backup plans. Yeah. So you definitely do a lot of planning beforehand. And then in terms of like, I think obviously in a film they're gonna have the guys look as cool as possible, badass as possible, but. How real is, like, them wearing, like, the crazy, you know, like, face paint? When you see, like, news reports and things like that, you see soldiers wearing, like, helmets and, like, much more body armor and stuff like that. So how yeah, realistic like, is when it? They were, when they were uh, scuba diving in, it looked like they didn't have much on them. And then all of a sudden they got all this, <laughs> all this stuff with them once they uh, get out of the water. Would a SEAL team, like, wear, like, helmets and, like, other more, like, yeah, or, I mean, especially or would, if would a team go in like, exactly the way they did, like, in terms of the way they were dressed? I mean, this was, what, 20 years ago, this movie, a little over 20 years ago, yeah. so it was probably a little different gear then. But, yeah, they were still using night vision when they went into the uh, tunnels and stuff. Nowadays, yeah, you have the night vision on a helmet. You could have ballistic or non-ballistic helmets, but, yeah, if we go into combat, we're wearing ballistic helmets. Right, right, mm-hmm. yeah. So you can't have like your hair all gelled up, all cool. And if I could, I would. <laughs> um, um, yeah. The main, I mean, it's always one of the main things. You got to look cool. Right. Yeah. Of course. So. Yeah. If there were only 17 bad guys, couldn't they have just come up on like four different ends of the island? That's a pretty big island for just 17 guys to cover. Yeah. It didn't look like they were even like patrolling that much. I think at one point in the movie, they're like, oh, we got to patrol more. Yeah. We, we yeah. Heard- yeah. Yeah. Because they heard the helicopters coming in or something. Well, it probably like wouldn't have helped if the SEALs had all had flashlights on their guns, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and night vision. So that kind of doesn't feel like that defeats the purpose. Yeah, they have night vision with visible yeah. <laughs> spotlights <laughs> in the front of their gun. All of the Navy SEALs get taken out within about five minutes of coming up through the tunnel. Because they all went in one group and they all got taken out. But they were like the best elite force, too. Right. It just seemed terrible planning. In a situation like that, where you would have a platoon like that captured... Mm-hmm. They wouldn't just be like, ah, oh, F it, let's just go out swinging, would they? Like in that scenario, would they surrender or would they just, ah, oh, we're just going to all die? Well, try to fight our way out. They didn't try. A couple to... people on the way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It seems like they didn't hit anybody in the rafters. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> Wait, yeah, which you would think that they would at least get somebody from, yeah. you know, fire one shot, they'd get one guy. And they may have la- they may have surrendered, but because the one guy bumped oh, a stone. Oh, true. And yeah, that's true. Yeah. Somebody yeah, yeah. pulled a trigger yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. Well, although he did kept saying, like the leader kept saying, Commander Anderson, if you have any concern for the lives of your men, you will order them to safety their weapons and place them on the deck. General, we've spilled the same blood in the same mud. You know goddamn well I can't give that order. I guess, I don't know what rank he was. He's, oh, they said commander, so he was probably like, uh, would, would you have like a uh, commander, or like lieutenant commander going on? No. No there, on a mission? No. And then there was the younger guy who gets killed, who's like supposed to watch John Mason, and he goes up. He says, "Stand down, Lieutenant." So he's a lieutenant. Would you have officers go on a mission? Which like guy that? was the lieutenant? The the younger guy who um who was the one the ladder at who the climbs end, the ladder at the end because yeah, he gets told to stand down, Lieutenant, 
when he was gonna like go through the the bur- the boiler thing. Mm-hmm. So they had a commander and a lieutenant, and then like a whole bunch of what are I would guess like enlisted guys. Right. Would normally officers go on? I mean, I know they're yeah. You would have like lieutenants and stuff, but yeah, usually up to a lieutenant, and then like as they get higher up, they'd be more on the uh, planning side and like the uh, like he'd be back overarching. At the... Yeah, like you'd have a lieutenant commander or commander in charge of the whole team. Got it. So so far, probably not the most realistic representation of. I would say yeah. of, of anything that happened with the seals, what was probably the most realistic. Um, Knowing that there was majority of it was not realistic, but was there was there anything that was like, oh yeah, that's what seals do? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Has there it's been like, any? So like, I know I have a I have a friend who uh, went to the naval academy and he was in um, he was uh, on submarines, and I used to ask him like, oh like what's the best? Because there's been a ton of really good movies about subs and stuff like that, Hunt for Red October, Crimson Tide, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh like what's the most realistic movie that portrays being on a submarine in the navy? And he was like, joking aside down periscope good morning sir martin d pascal executive officer of the stingray sir you come with a volume control pascal excuse me sir lieutenant commander tom dodge you're kind of young for an xo excellence knows no age sir uh-huh speaking of age what do you think about our boat pascal i feel i need a tetanus shot just from looking at it the only thing holding her together are the bird droppings sir he was said if you watch the movie and if you've been on a submarine the way they talk the things they say the way they act Someone who spent a lot of time in on Navy subs actually told them how to do stuff. He's like, the movie's a complete joke, and like none of that would actually really happen. But like the way they actually act and they do stuff on the submarine, he was like, is way more realistic than how they act in the Hunt for Red October. Way more realistic than Crimson Tide. In terms of like movies that maybe have like represented seals, has there been any film or TV show you've ever seen that's been even close? Aside from like maybe the documentary that followed that Bud's class, <laughs> but, like that, a fictional I mean, that film, one was a, a real a real thing. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the movies that come out now, they do get really good, either ex-military or people coming in to consult, and uh, a lot of the tactics are pretty good, sometimes a little too good, like we're giving away our tactics in these right. movies. But yeah, like, uh, which one? Zero Dark Thirty, I know, I think was... Yeah, that was that was really good, that end scene, that end, uh, end scene when they take down uh, yeah. Bin Laden, that was uh, pretty accurate stuff. Most of the realistic stuff is pretty, like, a lot of basic stuff. So it's like, that's what we're good at or we're known to be good at is because you master the basics. So right. when it's some crazy elaborate plan, like, of them zip lining in through the window, you're like, <laughs> right. all right, that's probably not going to go well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's just all about, so if you're seeing it and it's a much more, like, simple yeah, simple yeah. way so of, like, going into a room or... Like come in on a helicopter, fast rope down, and then onto a roof or whatever. Right. Something a little simpler. Definitely Zero Dark Thirty was pretty good can't remember i don't really watch too many of the seal movies right right but they're getting getting a lot better at consulting and hiring what about the guys. isn't there a, a tv show on now oh, like, david Bo- david borealis yeah, david yeah the guy's like what 50 something years old now right. and he's still like going out there yeah have you seen team. any of that show uh i think i saw half an episode now it's completely different like i don't even know if he's on a real seal team now they're oh. doing like black ops and whatever. oh of course of course so, yeah I, yeah i don't think that's very accurate but. yeah yeah but as far as this movie, no. <laughs> as the bathroom scene, I think at one point when the guy starts shooting from the, the head seal in the bathroom, he just goes full auto and starts spinning as yeah. he's shooting. <laughs> like he's not even aiming at anything. <laughs> the um, only real woman in this movie, I think I saw three women with actual speaking lines. There's a secretary in the beginning who says something like, I'll cancel your reservations. There's somebody in the war room. I don't know what her title was, but she had like a line. So what about the former warden? 
Died in 1979. All the guards we contacted were useless. And then there's his girlfriend. There's Nicolas Cage's girlfriend, Carla. And there's the, oh, yeah. the daughter. The yeah. daughter. Oh, the daughter. Well, and then there's the one hostage who gets a line. Yes. About like, I have a gun. I'll go get my mother <laughs> effing gun. <laughs> so Carla had a very similar role to Liv Tyler in Armageddon. Yes. They let her like in the control room again. It's yeah, like, exactly. They're right doing? in there. Just like, yeah. Oh, hey, just like listening on these top secret mission ops. Right. He's like this special agent in this super... I don't know that they have like command center stuff. Do they let like uh, friends and families of military (laughs) men like come in and sit in? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Somebody's wife start freaking out. (laughs) Yeah. Don't send him in there. uh, Oh, man. Some awkward, awkward sex scene. (laughs) This one that that made the Liv Tyler Ben Affleck scene like look like an Academy Award winning masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Nicolas Cage is convulsing and freaking out. With her on top of him. Oh, up on the roof? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're playing uh, Rocket Man in the background. Yeah, look at that again. And then he references Michael it. Bay foreshadowing all over the place there, yeah. So I guess um, Nicolas Cage is like huge. The whole thing of like why he doesn't like CDs and why he ordered the vinyl is like actually was like a Nicolas Cage thing. I don't know that he improvised that, but he like asked that to be included in the character to kind of add some. Oh, know, when he gets his uh, Beatles. When he gets the Meet the Beatles free pay $600 for. Which I actually think is really overpriced for even a mint copy of that album because the most expensive and rarest Beatles album, other than the album Yesterday and Today, which is the one that famously has the Butcher's cover on it, where it's the Beatles wearing like white Butcher lab coats and there's just all these doll parts all over the thing with like blood all over the place. (laughs) It was released and then subsequently pulled off the shelves. And they taped a new, in some cases, they uh, stuck a new album cover over it, like an image, which is a picture of the Beatles. They just stuck it on. If you can find a mint copy of a Yesterday and Today, that gets upwards of like six, seven hundred bucks. But if you have a mint copy of the White Album in mono, it was only released in mono in a small quantity in England. And that album I've seen on eBay for over a thousand dollars in mint condition. So mm. little sidetrack there into Beatles vinyl stuff. but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how realistic it was. I think he overpaid for that. But it was the 90s, late 90s, so yeah. chances, I don't think eBay was even around at that point. I guess they might have just been. They only really referenced older songs in this movie. There's a, when he's sitting in his underwear earlier in the house, there's a Peter and Gordon World Without Love is playing. It's like a relaxing song in the background. Yeah. Please lock me away and don't allow the day when Sean Connery is in the shower, they're playing if you're going to San Francisco yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah. Great singing, by the way, by Sean Connery. Yeah. It was weird because that song came out in 67. I think he went to prison sometime around then. Well, no, but, but then he, he escaped got out. multiple times. Yeah, he escaped okay. when he had... Because they said that he... I, I don't think his daughter was making that up when 
he, she, they, he met his mom at like a Led Zeppelin concert, which would have been in the seven, you know, late sixties, early. He 70s, was probably so. already on the run at that point. Yeah, well, yeah, because he's just oh, and then the U.S. Marshals show up, so U.S. Marshals would show up if you're a wanted criminal. But if there's no information on him, how do all these marshals know who to look for? Well, I think some people know. <laughs> yeah, oh, maybe so they gave him a fake name. Maybe they they told the marshals he was somebody else. True. They played "Leaving on a Jet Plane," but like Frank Sinatra singing it. I don't think they had any other real songs. The music, the score, I guess, is Hans Zimmer. Yeah, there's a lot of Michael Bay stuff. So, but there's a, there's definitely like a theme to this movie because it was like the same kind of four chords that they just speed up as the movie gets more intense <laughs> yeah. towards dun, the end. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> It's pretty similar to um, the theme from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. The theme's oh, called yeah. He's, yeah, a, he's a Pirate. I was when I was and if you play it. like you play like the the main theme from The Rock to that, it's pretty I mean it's Hans Zimmer. He's a great composer, oh, he but he both. definitely reuses. Yeah, yeah, he definitely reuses. I think he did both. Yeah. Uh, he definitely reuses his stuff. Hmm. Talk about some more Nicolas Cage stuff. The line where he uh, says that. Uh, <clears throat> How in the name of Zeus's butthole did you get out of your cell? Um, <laughs> he's got some really good stuff. Uh, and I really like his description. I think a really good scene in the film between Connery's character and Nicolas Cage's character is when they're diffusing that first rocket together. What exactly does this stuff do? If the rocket renders it aerosol, it can take out the entire city of people. Really? What happens if you drop one? Happily, it'll just wipe out you and me. I think that's where you kind of see when Nicolas Cage starts describing and like and bossing Mason around, because the whole film, he's been bossed around by everybody else, and now like yeah. he's in charge and he's doing it. And you really see, I mean... Talking about the overacting and stuff like that, but I think even just Sean Connery's facial expressions and the way he stands, he does a great job of like, okay, yeah, shit, no, this is some serious stuff. Right, because up until that point, Sean Connery's character, Mason, doesn't actually know anything about this whole missile thing. He knows about the hostages and that he might know they have missiles, but he doesn't know it's this like crazy chemical warfare. Right, which is what he tells, yeah, he tells him, and that's what kind of brings him in to help him continue on to go catch everything. You know, you have basically a former Special Forces guy who's been in prison who's probably like, you know, all he's had time to do is work out. Just getting that prison body. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Doing pull-ups in his jail cell for 30 years. Yeah, exactly. And maybe working out when he escaped a couple times. So, I mean, he did escape Alcatraz, which you've got uh, the movie Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood, which I don't think there was too much parallels in terms of how they actually escaped. I know that over the history of Through Alcatraz, there's a handful of escapes, and there's been at least one person who they do believe potentially actually escaped. They never found his body, but obviously he could have just been easily drowned and never found his body in the in the channel there. So potentially realistic. You have a former Special Forces guy who escapes from Alcatraz. Like, he could swim that, swim that yeah, channel. He's in, in shape. Crazy for. Yeah. You think he could do it? 
I could do it. You could save from Alcatraz. <laughs> I think his. Okay. I think it's the whole scene when they're in the uh, cell and he's like he's just tearing the the bed. I feel like if that's how he escaped, wouldn't they notice that he's tearing apart his sheets? Unless he, I guess he did it. He I guess he did that pretty quickly. So maybe he. Uh, he did it all in like one night, like just real quick. I guess, yeah, but then he would have had to really like figure that out and know that that would work. And he just happened to have a wheel. Where do you get the wheel from? I assume that was a like under the bed. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Why was his, why would his bed be on wheels? That doesn't make any sense. It's a jail cell, isn't everything like bolted? And then why would it be that easy to open a jail cell? Like yeah. right at the end of the line, there's a handle, and, you could, and nobody's watching I, it. I think that's actually an Alcatraz, though. I think that's yeah, how is, they. Is it? Yeah. Because, I mean, they filmed that in Alcatraz, so unless they, I mean, obviously they could have made it up, but, like, it was a prison that was built in, like, I don't know, the 20s, early 1900s, so it was probably not too technical in terms of its structure. Yeah, there's a special feature on the DVD of the history of Alcatraz going back to, like, Native Americans and then, like, in the 20s and everything. But they're showing a lot of Alcatraz in that, and it looks very different than almost every scene in this movie except for the jail cells. There's a scene where they're in like coal cars or something. Yeah, I didn't really. That was a little much. No, that was like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. They're just going to want a mine car. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, what? I mean, even if you look through that, like, what purpose would that serve for anything? That's a good idea. And then somehow Sean Connery's hanging upside down. I was like, how did did he get there? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that was, they were trying to reference that that was something to do with like when it was a Civil War fort, but I still don't know what purpose any of that would serve other than maybe moving like coal or something like that or munitions i don't i don't know it was a little like in alcatraz would they use it for laundry <laughs> i don't know to yeah those just to much. uh relate sean connery to indiana jones oh yeah in another movie that's yeah. the whole purpose henry jones uh henry jones senior i don't want to believe it because i love sean connery but uh word on the street was that he was like a huge diva during the filming of this movie oh really like he wouldn't get in the water unless it was above a certain temperature and this and that oh man um, yeah i don't I, know if you've heard of it i had like heard that. i think i heard the temperature thing because i had i heard a thing about how that that he had asked for it to be like 90 degrees or something like that and then all of a sudden all these people started getting really sick because it just turned this into this like cesspool of this like hot water <laughs> just like sitting in a because there's just like a tank on like a movie set yeah yeah, one of my old buds instructors was a uh, in the movie oh, as okay. one of the seals, and I don't know if it was from him, but it was just like passed down the line of yeah. uh, Sean Connery, just like a huge diva. Oh, I'm sure. Well, actually, that reminds me. Of the one thing I did read is that he refused to go back and forth from the mainland to Alcatraz, so they actually built a cabin on the island for him to stay in during when they were shooting on Alcatraz, so he didn't have to go back and forth every day hmm. on the ferry, which is what the rest of the cast and crew did. So Sean Connery was pretty much just, you know, staying alone on Alcatraz every night for probably like a month. Hmm. I did read, though, that he actually helped Michael Bay a lot. Disney actually produced this movie. So there were aspects where... Well, it's Hollywood Pictures, which was owned by Yeah, Disney. yeah, yeah. So there were evidently Disney executives that were there on set that were giving him grief for probably going over budget with too many explosions or something like that. But I guess I, the story was that Michael Bay was... I think this was um, on the commentary track for the Criterion, that Michael Bay was like leaving the hotel to go to a meeting and Sean Connery saw him and Sean Connery was dressed to go golfing. He was like in, you know, golfing stuff. And Michael Bay told him what he was doing. He's like, oh yeah, I'm going to this meeting, whatever, hard time. And Sean Connery was like, oh, can I come with you? 
So basically, Sean Connery walks into the meeting with Michael Bay to these executives, and he said that the executives just like refused. They just like didn't say anything. He's like, those guys would have just like reamed me out and would have been screaming and yelling at me. And he's like, Sean Connery was there and basically just defended me and told him how good of a job I was doing and like tell, told him to leave me alone. And so they did. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, I mean, it must be cool to be yeah Sean Connery. You just kind of like I can't really say much. James Bond. Probably like half the budget of that movie was just paying him. <laughs> Probably yeah yeah. I mean, a good choice though. Like I had heard that um. Arnold Schwarzenegger had been offered the role that of John Mason and turned it down. And then I think it was one of his biggest regrets that he didn't uh, hmm. play the role. So, because that this movie was pretty successful when it came out in terms of the box office. So, yeah, I'd say this is probably one of his first well-known movies. Was this before or after Bad Boys? I feel like it was before. No, no, Bad Boys was ninety-five. Okay. All right. So. And this was ninety-six. Yeah. Yeah. But he Which must have been pretty close. Yeah, he must have been filming like them. that. Yeah, the one scene I really liked, as far as cinematography goes, I feel like there wasn't a lot in this I really liked. I liked the overhead shots of San Francisco, but that could have been stock footage. I don't know. The scene towards the end, which I think is one of the iconic scenes, where Nicolas Cage after oh, stabbing yeah. himself in the that's... heart, he's holding up the flares. It's not quite the same thing, but I feel like that's very reminiscent of like William Defoe in Platoon. Yes. Where he's yeah, like yeah, falling yeah. down with his hands in the air. Yeah. And... I feel like that's a pretty iconic shot from this, yeah. from this movie. I think that's on one of the covers. It not, might it's be. not on the Criterion cover. No, the Criterion cover is just all black with like a picture of Alcatraz. Yeah. I think they did their better covers later on, like into the early 2000s when they started redoing the covers of Criterion movies. Just after that, then the final scene where. Nicholas Cage and Sean Connery are kind of saying goodbye to each other. Sean Connery says, uh, It's been a long time since I've said thank you to anybody. But thank you. And I felt like it would have been much better if he said, It's been a long time since I said thank you to anyone. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> he does not turn him over at the end. Mason, Sean Connery, hands good speed like a little piece of paper that had the whereabouts of the microfilm written down. At what point in time did he write that? <laughs> yeah, where did he get the paper, actually? Yeah, and, and what... then a pen, you know, how, or I guess you don't know how it is. <laughs> For me, I can never find a pen. <laughs> so he's like, I don't know, maybe he's got one. Maybe he found one in Alcatraz. One <laughs> of the, maybe he got it from the gift shop. Honestly, so paper, pen, he probably went to the gift shop. Uh-huh. Why doesn't Goodspeed turn that information over to the FBI? Was I don't know if I just like missed something with the reasoning there. I think they kind of showed that again it's more michael bay foreshadowing when uh john spencer's character uh womack he tears up the attorney general thing and he's like sorry that's a federal document isn't that illegal oh yeah and then later on he went in that scene he kind of turns to him he's like hey they tore up your pardon goodspeed's like a pretty a fairly moral guy like he's a good guy and so probably was just like this is ridiculous and he told him what he stole so he knows like he's not a murderer. He's not like he hasn't killed a whole bunch of people or done assault or something like that. He literally was just stole secrets. Dude, 70. Why not just give him a break? I mean, I kind of agree, I guess, at some point. But like, what's he going to do with that stuff? Maybe he's kind of like, ah, F this. I'm out of the FBI and I'm going to go. Yeah. And what's he going to do with all the secrets? He's going to sell them to somebody and that's going to be treason. <laughs> that he's doing exactly what once his face got put in jail and forgot about for 30 years. But then what did he do in National Treasury? He went into the, uh, <laughs> yeah. into the desk in the Oval Office. Yeah, and he, took the, president, he took the president hostage. 
yeah, I, don't, I know that um, Michael Bay, I don't know if he was joking when he said it, but I had read something where he said that um, he actually had thought of, like, outlined a sequel to this, uh, where yeah. it was, you know, he steals those secrets and then, you know, everybody's after him, and the only person he can turn to to help him is John Mason, which could have been not a bad sequel. Was, so, it, yeah. was National Treasure done by Disney? Yes. So maybe there's, like, a connection then. Maybe they, maybe they liked the idea of that, fr- took it from here and came up with National Treasure. Yeah, but, maybe. When John Spencer was describing why Mason was in jail in the first place, and he's talking about, like, him stealing all these secrets, he said, like, This man knows our most intimate secrets from the last half century. The alien landing at Roswell, the truth about the JFK assassination. He actually says the alien landing at Roswell, which I'm pretty sure is a secret, would, would be the secret of the fact that there was actual aliens. <laughs> so he did candidates relieve. Yeah, they I mean, could have done a better job with the backstory because so far you're like, why has this guy been in jail for 35 years? Yeah, and it doesn't like, oh, seem he, like he it's... stole the J. Edgar Hoover secrets. Like, come on, I feel like most of that stuff's come out. Like, it, it should have been they, all they had to do was replace like what secrets he stole and then hid them with something a little bit better than. But that's that. that's a movie. Like that that one little yeah. line is a movie, and it's just like thrown out there. Like, oh yeah, there's aliens. So really, what? But yeah, but actually, if you think about it, though, you could do a prequel to The Rock, which would be Sean Connery's character as an SAS operative going in to the U.S. and stealing all that stuff, and then, like, maybe it starts with him getting caught for the first time, and then it's all these, you know, he said he escaped from maximum security prison like two times. I don't know if that if Alcatraz counts as those two times. So potentially, he's escaped from prison three times or more. Hmm. That prequel ends with the first shot you see of Sean Connery, and that's where it cuts to black. So if this does take place in the same world as Armageddon, they should have told Bruce Willis and his guys that, hey, there might be aliens up there when you go up in the space shuttle. Yeah, that's true. The shot to the heart. How is like... Oh, the atropine? Yeah, so like this gas completely eats you away from the inside out (laughs) and like your skin is doing whatever, like falling off. But this one little shot to your heart and you're good. Like you're walking away from it two minutes later. (laughs) Yeah. I think even too in that scene when he does stab himself in the heart that I think the needle is still sticking out of his chest when he like gets up and walks with the flares. Like I don't think he pulled the needle out of his chest. And then he gets blasted all the way into the ocean from yeah. that from that balcony or wherever or not balcony, but like Yeah, like the ledge or whatever. The ledge he was. It was like nowhere near the water. And <laughs> by thermite plasma, which was supposed to incinerate everything and like burn all up the VX gas and you know, of course he survives. Is that the and same? And then he's underwater for five minutes until Sean Connery comes and gets him. <laughs> right. And then he's just talking he's just he's alive is atropine what they use in pulp fiction too when uh uma thurman Uh, gets stabbed in the heart no i think in pulp fiction it's adrenaline um, yeah Yeah, i think it's adrenaline i feel like anytime you would stab anything into your heart you're gonna die because you can't have a hole in your heart uh i don't know no you definitely cannot have a hole in your (laughs) heart i mean it's a pretty small hole it's a needle that was a big needle. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Crazy big needle. I mean, they may, probably made it a big needle in the film so you could see it on screen because otherwise you probably wouldn't be able to see it like, yeah. even on film. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing in the rain. Like, but you what know, is If it? you ever watch a movie, it's never just like slightly drizzling. It's complete downpour raining in any movie scene in which it's raining. Like the beginning of this movie when it's like full on downpour and those Marines are doing a military funeral. Yeah. Wearing just their regular like class uniforms and not like any type of like I've been to Arlington and even the guys who guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers they wear a jacket when it's raining. <laughs> I was there once when it was raining and they don't they don't just stand up there in their uniform. So yeah, like a trench coat or something. Yeah, exactly. So they they definitely be wearing that. 
I mean, he also had that needle in his pocket the entire time, I guess. Yeah. He got thrown through four different windows, beat up, kicked around. Or the fact that the, the gas, like one of the gas balls, falls from a shelf and shatters on the floor at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. and kills one of the Marines. But yet Nicolas Cage puts it in his pocket. Oh, he's holding it in his hand and he's jumping around, and dodging bullets. Then he puts it in his breast and pocket and he gets through, through, a thrown window. through a window. <laughs> and it's still good enough for him to reach in and put it in the guy's mouth. Yeah. Which is a pretty brutal way to die. A pretty awesome way for Nicolas Cage to take that guy down. But the chances of that thing not just like, <laughs> they seemed like they were pretty fragile. So, Well, it, it changed over the course of the movie. At first, when he had Sean Connery hold it, he's like, It's a cholinesterase inhibitor. Stops the brain from sending nerve messages down the spinal cord within 30 seconds. Any epidermal exposure or inhalation, and you'll know. Twinge at the small of your back as the poison seizes your nervous system. Do not move that! And then all of a sudden he's like, brushing the whole thing into a grate yeah. into the grate and he's just like tossing the whole thing around <laughs> by the end you're like oh my god <laughs> still entertaining of course yeah that's the purpose of it i mean if we would say like why is the rock in the criterion collection it's because it defines the like michael bay action like 90s action film didn't you say that about armageddon well it does <laughs> i don't know why they put both in maybe for good measure it does seem like early criterion was more popular at the time in action movies because you had The Rock, you had RoboCop, you had Armageddon, you had Spinal Tap, like a lot of like more popular movies, whereas a lot of what comes out now, I feel like the average moviegoer doesn't recognize the names that they're putting out now. Yeah, every now and then there's one, like you'll have like The Breakfast Club or... or Princess uh, Bull, Bride. Yeah, Princess Bride, Bull Durham. Criterion got popular in the 80s uh, with Laserdisc and putting special features on Laserdisc, the widescreen format. In the mid-90s, like DVDs had become pretty popular and were pretty much replacing VHS. So probably the Criterion Collection version of some of these films was they were going in and, um, you know, they have like the special features, the commentary tracks. The Criterion Collection is the production company that started that. No other person was doing director commentaries until the Criterion Collection did. No one was doing special features until they were doing it. So I think that's kind of where you see a lot of the some of the movies where we're like, eh, why is that in the Criterion Collection? Really, like these two movies tend to pop up. I would say this is Spinal Tap and Robocop would be a handful, like the ones you mentioned. Yeah. Be like, why are these? When you compare them to like Seven Samurai or like The Seventh Seal or, you know, uh, Days of Heaven or some of these other movies that are in the, that are like lauded as critically acclaimed movies. But in any case, it's not a collection of the best movies. It's more or less a collection of like genre defining films. So. Sure. That's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. Joe, thanks for uh, joining us and being a a special guest. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be on my favorite podcast. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Uh, You can find the show notes of this episode at criteriononthecouch.com slash the rock. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, It helps our podcast be found by other Criterion and movie fans out there. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch, and on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Yurick with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.